0: Welcome back. For those of you just joining us, we are going to be looking at Season 2, Episode 3, which is simply titled Matthew 4, Verse 24. So the name of the episode is simply the um, scripture reference, Matthew four, twenty-four. So let's start with prayer, invoking Our Lady, Our Blessed Mother, Mother Mary, um, especially on this feast of the dedication of St. Mary Major in Rome. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, so let's just jump into episode three. Again, it's just titled Matthew 4, chapter 4, verse 24. And that verse reads, So his fame spread throughout all Syria. And they brought him all the sick those afflicted with various diseases and pains demoniacs epileptics and paralytics and he healed them so i think many of us would have just kind of read over this verse and not thought about a lot about it certainly i wouldn't have thought the Syria line but here it's so clear, right? He's gone up to the north. We looked at the map last time. He's gone up to the north, and so um, they were walking through Bashan, which is the modern-day Golan Heights, and so now they are at the edge of Syria towards um, Damascus, apparently. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and that's what we see in this episode. So again, it's a reminder to us that so much happens between the lines of scripture, that we have this 30-minute episode on this one verse of scripture. It reminds us of all the stuff that happened in those three years of Jesus's public ministry that are not contained, are not written in scripture. All the stuff between the lines. There's a reason that episode one of season two contained that line from John. Remember, our busted mother gives John that little disclaimer, right? Um, the world could not contain all the books that would be written if you wrote everything about Jesus and that we find that at the end of John's Gospel. So there's a reason that was included in the first episode of the season because there's so much between the lines that we don't that we don't know. We don't know what happens. And so this episode is really simply Dallas's what if? Um, and I think we have to remember that about this season in particular. That, um, and if you can find it, Dallas did a, a kind of a little a little video, it's not too long, about the, the statement of faith of the chosen. And he's very honest about the fact that they're not looking at a certain religious tradition. They're looking at scripture. And when they don't um, particularly depict a story from scripture, they're asking themselves, is this plausible? Does this fit? And so um, we have to remember that in season two, that this is Dallas's interpretation of the events. We don't know if any of this happened. What we do know is that he went to Syria and he cured the paralytics and the epileptics and the demoniacs. Um, This is Dallas just saying, maybe this happened behind the scenes. So this whole episode is that single verse, Matthew 4, 24. And we simply see daily life on the road. What would it have been like to travel with Jesus, to accompany Jesus? What would it have been like to accompany, to travel with people that you did not know? Getting to know them. And so a big chunk of this episode is simply that conversation by the fire. Just getting to know each other. Because all these people are very different. And suddenly they're thrown together. And the one thing they have in common is that Jesus called them they don't even really know what that means they don't know they all have different ideas of what the messiah is going to be like they don't even know what that call really means Um, and so they have this one thing in common that jesus called them and we know they are figuring it out but we know that just because jesus calls you doesn't mean that life is going to be easy in fact it's usually going to be the opposite so we're getting this behind the scenes look Something that we've probably never thought about, right? Um, what happens in between the miracles? What happens in between the parables? What happens in between the teachings? Between the big moments, what happens behind these big moments? Um, and so that's what we have. The the um, the the that's what we have in this in this thirty minute episode, right? Them getting to know each other, that character development. I love Bill Stewart points out, like a pilgrimage trip. Um, Bill has traveled. I've traveled with Bill and his wife Valerie. Many of you watching have traveled with us. It's exactly like that, right? Like suddenly you're on this adventure and you don't know these people and all you have in common is that you're on this adventure together. And so there are going to be rough spots, right? You're going to argue. You're going to have tense moments. Why? Because you're people. And I know there's been some some disagreement in the chat, like, was this a good episode? Because it does remind us, and I'm kind of getting ahead of myself, but it does remind us of the church today, I think. And it does remind us that there's too much fighting in the church. But it's also a reminder to us that the disciples weren't perfect, right? As Wendy says, they're a family, right? And so they weren't perfect. They fought. And Christ comes not because they're perfect, but because they need him. And I think that's a great reminder for us. So often we expect the followers of Christ to be perfect. Christ was perfect. The rest of us are trying, and that's why he came. And so I think it's a reminder to us. You know, we talked in an earlier, I think it was last week, um, we talked about Peter and whether or not we like Peter. And Peter annoys a lot of people. Well, we don't have St. Peter, right? We have Simon right now. And Simon is still figuring out what it looks like to follow Christ. And aren't we all still trying to figure out what it looks like to follow Christ? The first 15 minutes of this episode are one take. And so if you have studied film or if that's kind of something you nerd out on, you probably noticed that. We have one camera, one single take for the first 15 minutes, that's incredible. And Dallas actually did a video where he tells the story. Um, It took them several times to get it right, and they had to fight against the sun, and um, it was nerve-wracking. But cinematically, the first 15 minutes are a masterpiece. And so if you haven't noticed that, you might go back and look again at this episode. It is one single camera, which means every actor has to be right on their mark, Um, and you'll notice, um, if you watch it with this in mind, you'll notice some hesitation with the actors delivering their lines, Dallas couldn't be visible. So Dallas, I mean, like the sound guy in Dallas, they're in tents. There's one tent that's, that's closed. And so that's where they are observing, you know, trying to speak into the camera guy's ear. The camera guy hold is holding the camera for 15 minutes. Um, it's brilliant. And, but what it does is it really propels the scene onward it really propels the scene forward into evening into twilight and so you actually watch the sunset set in real time and so it's it's a brilliant brilliant um first 15 minutes and the actors had to nail everything right they had to nail every movement um the camera guy had to nail every movement it's just amazing so you might watch those first 15 minutes again and just appreciate the amazingness so angie recognizes um angie for those of you who used to watch three-minute theology that i i did three-minute theology.com angie was my camera girl, lady and producer so she understands right like that was amazing okay um, at the beginning of the episode, we have Matthew remembering, um, wanting to rem- wanting to know scripture, right? Remember that, that Matthew has asked Philip to teach him scripture. And I think it's really interesting, the scripture verse that Matthew learns from Philip, that Philip chooses to teach Matthew. It will come into play later in the season. But, um, you know, I think Matthew's expecting to learn prophecy, to learn law, to learn details, to learn the story, right? Matthew's expecting to learn what he sees as important. Philip starts with the heart, not prophecy, not the big details, not the story, right? Why? Because none of this matters without the encounter with the Lord. And so Philip really starts at the first level, right? He says, you know, if you don't understand the Lord's love, if you don't understand the Lord's mercy, there's never going to be an understanding of prophecy, Type, you know, um, the law, the story, And so Philip really takes us back to that, what's at the heart, right? Um, Philip wants him to encounter the heart of scripture. And so he starts him with Psalm 139, verse 8. If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed deep in the depths or in Sheol, you are there. That the Lord is always with him. Um, And Matthew's like, I don't feel it always. And Philip says, of course you don't, right? You don't always feel it. And that's important for us to remember we're not always going to feel our prayer life we're not always going to feel the lord's presence we may be in the depths we may be in the heights we might not feel it and that doesn't mean the lord isn't with us Um, and so i think it's really important that philip starts with this understanding of love understanding of mercy understanding of the omnipotence of god the omnipresence of god with matthew before we get into kind of the details of scripture then you know most of the episode is the apostles hanging out and I don't know about you, but I've never, I've never thought about this, right? What was happening when Jesus was curing people? Like, have you ever thought about crowd control? I mean, it seems really mundane, but surely there had to be something, right? Um, you know, we see from the Gospels that this would have exhausted, this would have exhausted Christ, which is, shows that he's fully human, right? Um, he needed rest, and so. It's just a good thing, I think, to remember that um, there was all this stuff happening behind the scenes. How would it have felt to be part of this? You don't know what's happening, right? You have no idea what following the Messiah looks like. And so there's that discussion, right, of is there going to be military force needed? Um, Think of the expectation and the waiting and the hope, the wonder of what it would be like. They were raised on these stories, right? They were raised on these stories of what the messiah what expectation was going to be and now they're living it and does it fall short is it different you know and so i love these discussions to kind of put on our jewish first century lenses you know we try to do that every advent right to enter into that expectation to enter into that waiting and that's what they're doing they're living that waiting that's now been fulfilled and what does it look like they quote from Zechariah fourteen. Um, the Lord will go out and fight against those nations, um, and so they see the Messiah as this military leader. Um, that's made. That's you know, I think that's made a lot of nowadays. Like that's how we see Jew- the Jews must have expected a military leader. There's some differing ideas of whether we make too much of that um but definitely Zechariah 14 has this idea of the messiah uniting the tribes that's always a messianic expectation to unite the tribes the 10 tribes that had been dispersed so we see again and again in the prophets that he's uniting the tribes he's uniting the tribes but he's going to unite the tribes in a very different way right <laughs> than might be expected um but that idea like that that was, that was all imagery from Zechariah 14 his, his feet on the Mount of Olives um and I've written before about um, our Lord actually weeping over Jerusalem. The place where he wept over Jerusalem was on the Mount of Olives. And so this expectation that he's foreseeing that their expectation is going to be fulfilled, but in a completely different way. Um, and so this idea of, of, and but yet he talks about on the Mount of Olives when he prophesies the end of the world in the end of the world discourse, um, you know, he, he makes these Old Testament references as well. So it's mysterious, what messianic prophecies are fulfilled in christ and what messianic prophecies will be fulfilled at the end of time but that was a zechariah 14 reference for those of you keeping track at home Um, john asks very fittingly i thought the messiah was supposed to come when we were all holy we saw this reference as well in season one by nicodemus when nicodemus is teaching um his students and he's lecturing them he's admonishing them not to fish on Shabbat, right? And so he says, you know, we have to be holy so that, we have to be observant of Shabbat. We have to be obedient so that the Messiah will come. And I think if you place yourself in their shoes, that makes sense. Because if you read the Old Testament, when the Jews were faithful, they were blessed. When they were disobedient, they were punished, right? And so we, we have the, the disobedience um, punished with exile. We have, um, we have constantly that cycle of obedience and disobedience. And when they're disobedient, they're punished. And so I think it would be natural for Jews in the first century to say, the Messiah is not going to come if we're not obedient. Um, freedom from slavery, return from exile happened after they repented of their evil ways. And so I think that's a really natural um, thought of John. Like, I thought the Messiah would wait until we were holy. But Mary Magdalene nails it, doesn't she? Uh, Mary Magdalene says so beautifully, I don't think he's waiting for us to be holy. I think he's here because we can't be holy without him. Um, I mean, what more can be said right there, right? Um, And so we see, we're going to see the apostles grow and mature, not because they have to earn the Messiah's love, not because they have to earn the Messiah's coming, but because the Messiah is gonna help them mature and be holy. Um, Wendy asks, I always thought the Jews saw a new David as the Messiah. So both and they also, um, uh, so they were expecting a um, return to the Davidic kingdom, um, which many people would say needed a military, um, a military saving from Rome, right? A military um, defeat of Rome. They also, and we don't talk about this enough. They also saw the Messiah as a new Moses. And we we don't talk. I don't think we talk about that enough. We kind of focus on the military side um, of the Messiah expectation without understanding that they were expecting a prophet like Moses, a new Moses. And um, I actually wrote about that last week on integratedcatholiclife.org about this new Moses. That in John six we see at the multiplication of the loaves, they recognize this is the new Moses. John is the only one that makes that connection between the multiplication of the loaves and the prophet, which they were referring to the new Moses, a a reference to Deuteronomy. John's the only one that makes that connection. Why? Because he's going to follow up the story of the multiplication of the loaves with the story of the real manna, right? He's going to follow it up with the bread of life discourse, which we'll hear on Sunday at Mass and for the next Sunday. We heard it last Sunday, we're going to hear it this Sunday. So, um, so it's kind of interesting. They were expecting a new Moses who would bring them manna, which is why Christ says, "I am, I am the manna, right? I am the bread of life." Um, okay. Then we went to um, little James, and I thought this was a really interesting um, discussion. And you know, James is is kind of struggling with the fact that maybe these people only believe in them because believe in Christ because he healed them. Um, and we find out that James has a condition um, that he is not asked for healing for. Um, I really like this idea. I don't know where it's going to go, but I really like this idea of this storyline. I don't know if you noticed, I didn't notice until this episode, that the actor who plays little James, Jordan Walker-Ross, actually is, um, he has severe scoliosis and he has minor cerebral palsy. And um, you can find interviews of it with him. Um, he's been turned down for roles because of this. And um, I forget whether, I think they didn't really notice it when he tried out for Little James, but when they did, Dallas incorporated it into the storyline. And I think it'll be interesting to see where this goes. Will Little James ask for healing? Um, You know, he has kind of this inner struggle about whether he will ask. Um, His fear, which is funny because doesn't Thomas say, like, I'm pretty sure he knows, (laughs) you know, I'm pretty sure he's noticed, he knows your situation. And he's called him anyway, um, and so I think it's just an interesting. I think it it could be an interesting storyline. Um, Jackie said it bothers her about referring to the people being healed as only believing because of that. I think it's just something James is conjecturing. You know, I think it's just something James is saying. You know, because we see in the Gospels repeatedly. I mean, Christ Himself calls it out in John six, right? You believe in me because of the signs you've seen, right? Um, you're, well, in John 6, he says, like, you're here because you got fed, right? You saw the multiplication of the loaves. Um, and we have moments in the gospel where he knows they're just testing him for signs and he won't, he won't heal them. So we know people probably just gave, came to Jesus for healing. Um, but could it be that, yes, they do have faith and that's how he's able to heal them. And he's not able to heal them if they don't have the faith, right? So I think these are themes that are really going to come out more. Um, You know, maybe this is James's cross to carry. Maybe healing is not in the Lord's will. And that's a mystery. We know, and the catechism explicitly says it, we know not everybody was healed during our Lord's time on earth. Why not? Why wouldn't the Lord heal everyone? We all know people who've asked for healing today that it was not given to them, right? That's part of the mystery of God's will. Christina points out that, you know, um, the the blind friend, what's his na- her name, Shula? Shula hasn't been healed, right? Will Shula be healed? We don't know. Um, and so it's part of the mystery of God's will. And I like that they begin to talk about that. Um, I'm so happy, we're gonna spend the rest of the time, I wanna touch on a few more things and then we're gonna spend the rest of the time talking about Mary, uh, Mother Mary. But I'm so happy that Mother Mary is part of the show. Um, Not just that she was needed for the nativity and the wedding feast at Cana, and then we move on, but that she's there. I thought it was really beautiful that she knew Philip. Um, And at first I was like, how does she know Philip? But Philip, we know from the scriptures, Philip was a follower of John. They've kept John the Baptist. They've kept that in the show, right? Very explicitly that Philip was a follower of John the Baptist. We see that in the gospels. Um, And so maybe John visited his aunt right? We don't know. So that's, that's how I don't know if anybody else has other ideas of how Mary would know Philip. Um, but I assumed maybe John, you know, went to visit his aunt with his followers one day. Um, I love how Mary referenced Joseph the worker. Um, I thought that was a little, a little hat tip. I could be completely wrong, but it seemed like a little hat tip to um Catholic tradition um invoking Saint Joseph as the worker, Saint Joseph the worker. She said that Jesus has always been a worker. He gets that from his father, both of them I suppose. Um, I like lines like that. Um and then we're at the fire. Um Andrew's question just, you know, to make conversation is interesting. What would you do for money? Um, you know, would you do something painful? Would you do something crazy? And it's interesting because that's precisely what they're doing, right? Um, what they're about to do. They're doing something painful, they're doing something crazy, but it's not for money. Um, We'll see in this season, you know, they don't know where their next meal is coming from, and um, yet they're willing to do painful, crazy things. And so I think it was just an interesting thought. And they kind of talked about that, like, we'll never have money um, following him. Then we have that long discussion of the Jewish law and Jewish rules. I'm not really going to get into that only because Um, I want to spend the rest of the time really looking at the figure of the Blessed Mother. Um, But I think this just kind of shows the different personalities. It kind of is just um, building that character development. If there are any lines from that you want to throw into the chat, feel free to do that. Um, You know, Thomas wrestles really beautifully with the Roman occupation, right? And he's like, why is God allowed this? It's hard to feel like the chosen people. And I think we all have moments of that, right? Um it's the old Saint Teresa of Avila thing, right? If this is how you treat your friends, it's no wonder you have so few of them. But we have to remember that the Lord works through all of this. You know, the the Lord allowed the exile of the chosen people to Babylon, first to Syria and then to Babylon. And it says very, very clearly in the prophets that the lord was responsible basically for them to go into exile because they needed it right they needed to turn back to him and so there's there's suffering in our lives for various reasons and um that that's actually part of being part of the chosen people too right um we have the whole discussion of matthew right uh, with matthew is peter wrong to be upset You know, Dallas did a little commentary after this episode, and he got some heat because they were so mean to Matthew, and um, people didn't like that. Um, You know, Matthew's like, what do you want? And Andrew says, you know, Simon's not wrong. You owe us an apology. And, you know, I think it's important to remember Matthew hasn't apologized. And whether he should or not, we could debate that. But it has to be difficult to live alongside him. And so we, we kind of get that from Thomas, who's like, you know, my, my livelihood was taken away in taxes, right? I mean, he caused them great suffering. We can't forget that. Peter was afraid he was going to lose everything. He was about to flee to Egypt, right? So I don't think we should gloss too quickly over what would come living with Matthew when he hasn't apologized Um, Should he apologize? We don't know. You know, John points out Peter hasn't apologized either, right? And Peter almost turned, you know, Peter was going to be in league with the Romans too, right? And so um, it's just an interesting, I think, dynamics. And we aren't, I like how it's challenging us to really see the apostles as people. I really like that. Um, You know, they ask him, do you even know what it's like being Jewish? It's so real. Um, You know, to be Jewish meant to suffer. And, um, you know, we're all suffering together. And, you know, there was that reflection. I forget whether it was Thomas or Peter, that if we all wait a little longer, we'll have rescue because we're chosen. Um, oh, that was, it was Peter. And Peter went on that rant. Um, you know, Matthew is the outsider because he hasn't suffered, but he has suffered. He's just suffered in a different way. Um, Christina says, does Matthew even know he did anything wrong? Did he understand? I think he would. I mean, I'm I'm proposing to believe what, Um, a real person thought based on a fictional account of it. Um, But I would think, I mean, tax collectors were hated. Tax collectors knew they were in league with the Romans. The Romans were an occupying force. Um, It's hard to believe a Jewish boy now, I mean, we have a whole discussion of who Levi slash Matthew was in, in really, but it's really hard to believe that a tax collector wouldn't realize that he was an enemy of the Jewish people. I mean, just because of how hated they were, um, because they were in league with the Romans. And so um, I do think there's there has to be something that that Matthew says or does. Um, So it's just an interesting again. um, But when we... um, Oh, that's true. Okay, so Christine is pointing out that, you know, Matthew is autistic. And so one of the struggles is to understand how people feel. Um, and I think that's that's what this is all bringing up, right? I mean, I think he has to come to grips with how he's hurt people. Peter also has to understand how he's hurt people. And I think we can all see what biblical story is set up with Peter's, quote, repeatedly, I should I will not forgive, right? I won't forgive it. I'll never forgive it. Can we see a biblical story coming? Can we see Peter asking the Lord a question before too long? How often must I forgive? I think we're setting that up. Um, So let's talk about the Blessed Mother in the last um, time we have, the last half of this. Let's talk about Mary. I love this fireside conversation. I love that they're asking her questions. This feels very, very real to me, that the mother of Jesus would be there and would be accompanying them, would be helping them fall in love with Jesus even more. To me, this is who Mary is to us, right? Um, if you ever have a non-Catholic ask, you know, why is there devotion to the Blessed Mother? Number one, it's scriptural, right? All generations will call me blessed. That's in Luke's Gospel. But Mary helps us fall in love with Jesus. Um, And so I think this is, to me, this is a very Catholic part of the series. This is a very motherly part of the series. This is a very Marian episode. After this episode aired, um, an article came out that said this episode was blasphemous against um, our Lord and the Blessed Mother. And um, I read the article, I think, the priest who wrote it is coming at it with the proper intentions, with good intentions, but I disagree that this episode has major blasphemy against Mother Mary. I really loved the portrayal. Uh, I really thought this was a Marian episode. Okay, so we have the setup of Andrew's honest vulnerability. I love that. Um, you can tell, like every episode, I'm like, I love when this person's honest. I love when this person's vulnerable. Um, I think we have so many masks and, and um, facades in our world today that when someone allows that mask and that facade to be dropped and to be honestly vulnerable, I, I love it. So and it's Andrew's turn to do that. And Andrew's just very honest. Like, who am I to be called by the Messiah, right? Um, why me? And he's like, I'm not a hero. Am I just pretending to be like the great people of the Old Testament? I mean, think of the people, think of the stories they grew up with, right? Moses and Abraham and David and the judges. And Andrew's like, I'm not like those people, right? He says, I know I'm not great. I know it even more now being with him. That is humility. That's what we call (laughs) the virtue of humility. Humility, right? Um, Recognizing I've been called. And so there's something here, right? Um, False humility would be like, oh, I can't follow you. I'm not good enough. Andrew answers the call, but he recognizes that he's not God, right? He recognizes that he's not great. This is the virtue of humility. So I'm not offended that Mary is honest as well in all of this. Um, I went back and watched it several times. She never overtly says she sinned. She never even actually says she made mistakes. Now, I could have missed it. Um, And so if I missed it, feel free to correct me. She said, how do you what she so Rayma is talking about feeling pressure and making mistakes. And Mary says, how do you think I felt? She didn't say she made a mistake. How do you think I felt? She says she felt pressure. Now, is this something a sinless person would say? I don't know. And I think that's where we have to, like, we're paralyzed, but there's only so much we can know about Mary's heart and mind because none of us are sinless. (laughs) None of us are sinless. None of us were conceived without original sin, right? We all are conceived as a son and daughter of Adam and Eve. We all have wounds, we all have big holes that's called original sin and is concupiscence, okay? So none of us know what it's like to be sinless. So anything we guess about Mary's heart and mind in some ways is a theological, like theoretical exercise, okay? Um, But I really saw in Mary's admission this honesty, um, she's humble and we see it in the Magnificat, right? We see it in the Magnificat, her, her understanding of the great call and that all generations will call her blessed, but this understanding of who she is, right? And that she required a savior, which we sometimes miss, right? Um, and when she says like Jesus reassures her, right? God always made me feel like I shouldn't be burdened, that she shouldn't feel pressure. I don't know that that just felt very real to me. Um, I think sometimes we fail because we're trying to hold on so closely to the fact that Mary was sinless her entire life, and she was. We end up making her omnipotent. We end up making her omniscient. We forget that she is fully human. Think of the finding in the temple. You think she wouldn't have felt pressure at the finding of the temple? Do you think she was just sitting around being like, "Oh, I know we're gonna find him after three days"? That's not what Scripture tells us. Now, that wasn't a sin. Losing Jesus wasn't a sin. Mary didn't sin, but she didn't know where he was, and she must have been worried, right? And so, I think when um, one of the one of the complaints that this priest had about this episode. I, I just think it falls short. Like, I, I don't think in that dis, in that discourse, she said she sinned. Um, Nothing about it was easy. It wasn't in my hometown. My mother wasn't there. When Joseph handed him to me, it was like nothing I expected. It was like everything I had heard about having a baby, but I thought this would be completely different. Okay. Wouldn't... So, okay, so I... I I'm sorry that this part's so controversial. Um, And I actually wrote out the entire script. Um, So maybe I'll just read it because I think we need a good um, refresher. Um, I had to clean him off. He was covered. He needed to be cleaned and he was cold and he was crying and he needed my help. My help, a teenager from Nazareth. It actually made me think for just one moment, is this really the son of God? Then Joseph later told me he briefly thought the same thing, but we knew he was, and I don't know what I expected, but he was crying, and he needed me, and I wondered how long that would last. He doesn't need me anymore. He hasn't needed me for a long time, I suppose, and after Joseph passed, he grew up even quicker, and I wish I could say that made me happy. Of course, as a Jew, I'm excited. I'm proud of him, but as a mom, it makes me a little sad sometimes, so it's good to be with all of you for a bit. Number one, we see Mary in her motherly role for the apostles, which I think is key. Mary was a mother to the apostles. We believe that. Not just when Jesus gave her to John at the cross, but I really believe that she would have been a mother to the apostles in the early church, okay? I'm sorry that this part was so controversial because I think this is one of the most beautiful Marian parts of the entire show. So let's talk about the first controversy. Like the the big thing people found offensive was when she said he needed to be cleaned off. So let's get that off out of the way. Um, the Roman Catholic Church teaching, right? The Ca- I should say not the Roman. So the Catholic t- teaching in the East and the West, the Latin rites and our Eastern brothers and sisters, believe we, we hold definitively that Mary was a virgin before, during, and after childbirth. So the teaching of Mary's perpetual virginity is one of the longest defined dogmas of the church. It was taught by the earliest church fathers. It was officially declared a teaching, a dogma, at the Council of Constantinople, the Fifth Ecumenical Council of Constantinople, in 553, okay? We've believed this since we knew Mary, right? We have evidence of people writing and talking about it, since the earliest days of the church we have it formally defined for 1500 years okay everybody believed this um even the protestant reformers believed it okay so i know some of you listening aren't catholic martin luther believed it right perpetual virginity of the blessed mother um so that declaration at the fifth council of of constantinople declared mary ever virgin A hundred years later, Pope Martin I clarified that ever virgin meant Mary was a virgin before, during, and after. The question is, what does it mean to be a virgin during childbirth? Did Jesus need to be cleaned off? Or was the birth of Christ a miraculous event like light passing through glass? Was there a a shining light and Christ just suddenly appeared? Now, I'm not going to get into it here. Like Mary, I'm going to be polite. But I will say that the church never has authoritatively ruled on what it means to be a virgin during birth. It hasn't. It's never authoritatively ruled. Now in the 40s and 50s some historians, some church, um, some church scholars were talking about this and the Vatican came out with a a statement in 1960 saying stop talking about it. it it warned in 1960 against crude discussion of Our Lady. That's all it said. So I think it's important for us to remember what we piously believe and what popes have written about, what the church has written about, what the church fathers have. That's important, right? We don't dismiss it. But the church has never made an authoritative, infallible statement on what it means to be a virgin during childbirth um is pain in childbirth is do we know mary didn't have pain during childbirth i i mean i know that that's going to be controversial because everybody everybody says no mary didn't have pain during childbirth because childbirth pain in childbirth is a re- result of the fall we'll read genesis three sixteen. what the lord says is i will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth does that mean there was pain in childbirth before It's hard to see because was pain before the fall, right? So I'm just saying that there's a lot of theological discourse that I think we simplify. Um, And this isn't the time to kind of fight about all that, but I just think it's important for us to remember that this episode wasn't blasphemous simply because she said he needed to be cleaned off. Popes have written about it. Saints have written about it. The liturgy of the church indicates that, yes, she didn't experience pain. Her pain came at the foot of the cross when she gave birth to the church. Um, but I'm talking about infallible authoritative statements. Um, and even if the childbirth was painless, does that mean Jesus didn't need to be cleaned off? We don't know, right? Um, and so we don't, we don't know. And so I think um, it's important for us not to get distracted by this. I don't think it's right to, to say this is blasphemy against her virginity. Um, another comment that this priest made was um, that she doubted. Notice, she said the thought crossed her mind. Perhaps she was in wonder, not in doubt, right? The same wonder that she said, how can this be since I do not know man? Perhaps that same wonder is, oh my gosh, God is a baby in my hands. (laughs) Do you think that if you were in this situation you wouldn't have this wonder and awe that, oh my gosh, God is a baby in my hands. She never says she doesn't know, right? She never said she didn't believe. She said a thought crossed her mind and then immediately said, but we knew he was. John Henry Newman famously said, 10,000 difficulties do not make one doubt. Just because she may have had difficulty with this mystery doesn't mean that doesn't mean that she doubted, okay? So I, I had a problem with that as well. Um, ooh, my uncle Mark said, Jesus was like us in all things except sin. Wouldn't this apply to his birth? That's a very, that's very very interesting, right? So one thing I think we need to remember is that it was a real birth. So I think to, um, and some of this comes from the Protoevangelium of James, which is a Gnostic gospel which tends towards docetism, um, the idea that Jesus was just apparent, like just appeared as a man, but he actually was only God. That's a heresy. Um, and so this kind of Gnostic docetism that Jesus, it looked like Jesus was a baby, right? It looked like Jesus was a man, but it was all show. The church does say that the birth was a real birth. What does that mean? We don't know, right? Um, and so this is, these are important conversations to have, but I love this scene because I think it's very real. It treats Mary as a mother, right? Bill Stewart says, being amazed is no sin, right? Christina, you um, the other on Sunday, you pointed out, I don't think questions and feelings are sins. 100%, right? It treats Mary as a real mother, not some receptacle that Jesus used to come into the world not something he needed for a time and then discarded. That's how we treat Mary sometimes. In fact, a lot of our Protestant brothers and sisters sadly treat Mary that way, that he needed a mom because he needed to come into this world. And then it was, okay, we don't need you anymore. And then, you know, hasta la vista. And because he says like, who is my mother? Rather than those those indications of who is my mother, who are my brothers, who are my sisters, and blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Those Those two admonishments, I'm using air quotes for those just listening, those are actually reminders to us of why Mary is so holy. Because she heard the word of God and kept it. Because she did the will of the Father, right? She wasn't just a receptacle that he needed for a time and discarded. He, she was his mother. And I think this episode so beautifully shows that she was a real human woman. Not a holy card, not a statue, but a woman, a mother, Put, herself, put yourself in her place. For those of you who are moms, this is easier, right? Um, I have to say, I wasn't surprised that the blog post was written by a priest who probably, I don't know, has he ever held a baby in his hands? I don't know. A mom, I don't think, would have written that because a mom understands what it is to hold a baby and think, holy cow, this baby needs me. Um... I took her remarks, this is great, I took her remarks to mean that she was in awe how normal God was. She didn't know what to expect during her pregnancy. And now she sees she's going to have to raise a little baby boy, right? And she's struggling with that. And that's okay. That's not a sin. That makes her human. This baby, I mean, every mom holds the baby and thinks, I have to raise this thing, right? I have to keep this alive. This thing needs me. I think it would be natural for Mary to think it was going to be different because this was the son of God, right? Surely there's an angel here to help me. Surely there's an angel to do the laundry. Surely I can't mess this up. If I mess it up, what happens to salvation? You don't think these things were going through her mind? Um, She's a human being. And so often we either make her a receptacle or we make her a fourth person of the Trinity. And she was neither one of those things. The feelings she was feeling were real. They're the feelings of not just the mother of God, but the feelings of every mother. It was not what she expected because how could anybody know what to expect? Um, We don't believe in a Jesus that was born and immediately started walking and talking, right? We don't believe in a Jesus who came into this world at the age of 30. We believe in a God who spent nine months as a fetus. We believe in a God who was born, a real birth, Albeit miraculous, but a real birth. This isn't just vi- this isn't just important, this is vital to us because this is the incarnation. And we can get distant from it. Even with our nativity scenes and our Christmas carols, even the fact that we profess that God became man every Sunday, we don't admit what that means. We don't come face to face with the shocking reality of. The incarnation and to me that's what mary was doing right her honest her vulnerable her humble monologue we come face to face with the scandal of the incarnation god needed human parents that should be shocking to us god relied on human beings that's shocking That's the scandal of the Incarnation. And we don't think about it enough. We don't think about it enough. And that's what I think this episode put square in our faces with this beautiful monologue of Our Lady, of Mother Mary. The disciples need her. We need her. And at the end, Jesus needed her, right? Jesus needed her. Um... My uncle Mark said it. I obviously have not seen his nativity scene. He has an epic nativity scene. I'll just say that publicly. Um, and it's real, right? That, actually, that's one of the reasons that um, the Italians and their beautiful nativity scenes, they often situate their nativity scenes in, in the culture and the time of, of themselves. So like they'll put their neighborhood church in their nativity scene. They'll put their neighborhood pizzeria in their nativity scene. Why? Because God became flesh in the world. He became flesh in this time and place. Um, and so oftentimes in Italian nativity scenes, there's a drunk guy. And I think this is why. Because God became flesh in the middle of sin, in the middle of mess, in the middle of this world. There was probably a drunk guy in Bethlehem. And that doesn't that doesn't negate the power of the incarnation. It shows us the power of the incarnation, right? I don't really have words for the way this episode ends right um as a church i think we need to watch this again and again and again and again Um, christina commented at the beginning you know this episode was disturbing she didn't like this episode because it reminded her of the church today amen Um, i hope that we all watch that episode and think not i think it's easy to say like to see other people in this in this discussion To see other people in this fight, but I hope we watch it and see ourselves in the fight too. Um, We are so often those disciples fighting, those disciples becoming preoccupied with other things, losing track of what matters, holding grudges, stuck in our pride, that we forget Jesus. Those apostles forgot Jesus. Um, I think the end of that episode was so powerful, as you saw so clearly, what happens when we get, when we're fighting, right? Mary was just kind of standing watching it all happen. Um, Mary was the first disciple. Jesus can show us how to live, but only Mary can show us what it looks like to follow Christ. And I think she showed us that in this episode um, to wash his feet, to wash Jesus' feet. Um, And we won't get to wash Jesus' feet, but we'll get to wash the feet of those around us, right, Um, symbolically. I think it ends so beautifully in silence because sometimes we talk too much. And sometimes we get lost in our own arguments and our own grudges that we've forgotten Jesus. And we've forgotten what it looks to serve him. We've forgotten what it looks to, to love him. And Mary shows us that in this episode. Mary reminds us of what matters. All that matters is Jesus and serving him. And for us, that means serving our neighbor. Not getting lost in petty arguments, but serving our neighbor in mercy and love. So, that's all I have. So, you got some rants about the blessed mother. Um, You got some, not about her, but about misunderstandings about her. Um, we got a good lesson at the end, a good reminder of our vocation as Christians. Um, my mom said, I'd like to know which of the writers has such a close relationship with Mother Mary. Me too. I, I would think a lot of times um, if you're really entering into the scripture and you're really asking Jesus to help you fall in love with him, I would like to think that you will fall in love with his mom too. Um, you know Maximilian Kolbe said you can never love Jesus too you can never love Mary too much because you'll never love her more than Jesus did and um, I like to think the opposite's also true right to fall in love with Jesus means to fall in love with Mary Um, Christina pointed out his exhaustion was another sign of his humanness right yeah absolutely that that would that would exhaust him he was truly human do you think Jesus knew about their conversation? You know, we find in scripture that sometimes Jesus is limited, like he chooses to be limited in his human nature. Um, so Jesus isn't always omniscient when he's walking on this earth. Sometimes he is. He often reads the hearts and minds of people, um, but sometimes he's not omniscient. And it's because in his divine nature, he's chosen to be limited by his human nature, and that's the mystery of the incarnation. So sometimes he can read minds, but you know he'll say something like, "Only the Father knows the day or the hour." Doesn't mean that Jesus didn't know when the end of the world was. It was a showing that he was limited. He chose to be limited by his human nature. Um, so I don't know whether Jesus knew about their conversation or not. Um, if anything, he was tired and didn't want to get involved. <laughs> he just wanted to go take a, you know go to bed. Um, yeah, how quiet it got when footsteps were heard in the distance coming closer, right? They immediately knew, right? They could all sense that they had lost their focus, that they had lost their focus. So any other questions, thoughts, comments as we wrap up? Um, again, thank you all for watching live. Thank you for um, participating in the comments in the chat. I know many of you watch these YouTube videos later um we had several people binge watch all of season one over the last few days which is great and then a lot of people listen to the podcast on apple podcasts and spotify um if i can be shameless and uh, throwing up a, a qr code here for those of you watching on youtube if you scan that with your phone it takes me it takes you to my patreon page Um, Which is helping me continue to do these. Um, This really is part of my job right now And I love doing it and I love um, writing them and watching the episodes and prepping for this Um, But that little QR code um, does take you to my patreon page Where um, you could be a monthly supporter and those who are monthly supporters of a certain tier We do this once a month with a Bible story or with some passage of scripture and we have an online Bible study with some discussion. So those are are lots of fun too. So patreon.com slash Joan M. Watson will take you to my Patreon page. Um, Christina says, just when I think I don't like this episode, the filmmakers do something awesome like the ending. Yes. Um, I have to admit, I'll say season two, I don't, um, I'm not as crazy about it as I was season one, but there are really fantastic moments. Um, And I think the ending was was really strong here um, and I really loved it, so. Okay, um, Dan says I've been surprised how many men- how I've mentioned the chosen and many have never heard of it. Yeah, we have to spread the word because I think there's so much potential for um, evangelization for people just falling in love with Scripture. Dallas has always said that, you know, the chosen isn't about just the chosen. The chosen is to draw people to Scripture, and that's important. And so we need to spread the word about the chosen, not because of the chosen, but because it helps people fall in love with Jesus. Um, it'll help people pray. So. Tell people about it and then um, encourage them that if they watch The Chosen or if they haven't, like after they watch it, come watch these little commentaries and maybe they'll, you know, appreciate something different about the show or they'll have, you know, different thoughts um, after our discussions. So thank you all for joining us today, tonight, and we will be back on Sunday to look at episode four Um, then we'll be halfway through season two. So join us on Sunday. And if again, if you can't join us live on YouTube, you can always um, watch them archived or you can listen to Joan's take on the chosen Apple podcasts or Spotify. So, okay. Good night, everybody. God bless.